Welcome to episode 39 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Today, in our slow march westward from Egypt to Morocco, we're going to talk about the very special and relatively small country of Tunisia. But the relatively small size geographically and even the relatively small population of roughly 11 million should not permit us or encourage us to underestimate the importance, either today or historically, of the country of Tunisia. Geographically, Tunisia has roughly 800 miles of coastline on the Mediterranean, and those miles include the African conjunction of the western and eastern halves of the Mediterranean basin. Tunisia is also home to Africa's northernmost point, which is Cape Angela. And its capital and largest city is Tunis, located on its northeastern coast, which lends the country its modern name. However, under Roman rule, which lasted for roughly eight centuries, the province of Tunisia, which was much larger than modern-day Tunisia, was called Africa, or Ifriqiya, and it gave its name eventually to the entire continent. So even today, Tunisia occupies a rather special place in the continent of Africa. The Arab Spring, which began in Tunisia in 2011, consisted of an overthrow of a fairly corrupt regime and the creation of free multi-party parliamentary elections, which were held shortly thereafter. For quite a while, Tunisia has remained a unitary, semi-presidential, representative democratic republic. And it's the only North African country classified as free by Freedom House. From 2014 to 2020, it was considered the only democratic state in the Arab world, according to the Economist magazine's intelligence unit, which has something called the Democracy Index that somehow quantifies the degree to which a country is or is not a democracy. Um, Tunisia was recently downgraded in, 19, in 2021 to a hybrid regime, meaning not fully democratic. But it's still one of the few countries in Africa that ranks very high in the Human Development Index, with one of the highest per capita incomes in the entire continent of Africa. Before entering into the details of Tunisian history, and never mind the details of Jewish Tunisian history, I want to do a slight riff on food and so-called Jewish foods. And I want to do this for many reasons, not least of which is that I lived in Paris for two periods of my life. One was relatively short, like five months. The other was much longer, like five and a half years. And in both those periods, my very favorite restaurant, to which I took every visitor, my parents, my parents' friends, my friends, etc., etc., was a Tunisian kosher restaurant located practically next door to the Folie Berger. Now, what was so special about this restaurant? And is there something different between Tunisian kosher food and North African kosher food in general? Are all the cuisines of North Africa the same? The answer is emphatically not. Egyptian food is nothing like Moroccan food and vice versa. And 
One of the things I most loved about this Tunisian restaurant is because Tunisia was under Ottoman rule for many centuries, they adopted many Ottoman customs, including serving meze. So when you sat down at this little restaurant in Paris, the table was almost instantly covered before you ordered anything with small plates of different salads, nuts, fruits, an incredible variety. I mean, like 20 or 30. The table was literally covered with these small plates for which you were charged nothing in the old days. Now you have to order and pay for that because too many people went in, bought a little bit of house wine or something, and basically ate their meal for free by eating these free appetizers. So now I think you have to pay 10 euros for the appetizers, which are enough for however many people sit at the table. And you were always expected after these appetizers to buy a main course, which was either grilled meat or grilled fish in general. But the broader point I want to make is not only a point about North African cuisine, but a point about so-called Jewish food all over the world, including Ashkenazic Jewish food from Eastern Europe. We too often neglect to remember that Jewish food is a reflection of the people among whom certain Jews lived. So Eastern European Jewish food is very much like the food of Ukrainians, Poles, Belarusians, etc., etc. And Central European food is very much like the food of Austro-Hungary, which is today Austria, Hungary, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and to some extent even Bavaria. So, for example, the famous matzo ball soup that everybody thinks of as quintessentially Jewish is in fact just chicken soup, which is Jewish penicillin, with dumplings. And during Passover, the dumplings are made out of crumbled matzahs rather than any other kind of flour. But the tradition of having dumplings in soup is widespread in Central Europe, so much so that I came to dislike dumplings because they often overpowered the dish. And I prefer my matzo ball soup without matzo balls. But there's nothing particularly Jewish about matzo ball soup except in the imagination of most Americans, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, who associate that food. And also, Jews are not obliged to like everything that's labeled Jewish food. I know many, many Jews who detest gefilte fish, which can be very good, and which is actually originally made in France, les quenelles de brochet. That's gefilte fish a sort of gourmet high-level version, but it's essentially the same dish. So North African Jewish food varies at least as much as the cuisines of each of the countries where that food is prepared and enjoyed by Jewish families. Each in its own way is delicious, but there's very little in common between Egyptian food, Tunisian food, and Moroccan food. They're all terrific. They're all very different. And since most of these countries no longer have Jewish communities, what I would say is if you're curious about eating those foods, you should find a family, a Jewish family that has traditional food, you know, some like mother, grandmother, whatever, who's wedded to preparing the traditional specialties of her traditions and 
enjoy a meal in their home. Have Egyptian Jewish food, Libyan Jewish food, which is incredible, Tunisian Jewish food, which is terrific. And to this day, when I think of that restaurant in Paris, which is now closed, it brings tears to my eyes because it was so good, so predictable, so much fun, so warm and bustling and familial. It represented a lot of what made Tunisian Jewish culture distinctive. And although I usually save this for the end of each episode, I will tell you that today in France, and particularly in Paris, the number of stars, whether in the political scene, the entertainment scene, the sports scene, whatever, who are of Tunisian Jewish origin is amazing. I mean, there are dozens and dozens that are household names if you live in, in Paris for any amount of time. And there are also a similar number in Israel, but most people in Israel don't necessarily know that they're Tunisian, whereas in France, people are very well aware of the difference between Tunisians, Algerians, Moroccans, etc. So let's get back to some history, which is what, as you know by now, I really love. At the beginning of recorded history, Tunisia was inhabited by Berber tribes, particularly inland, and its coast was settled by Phoenicians starting as early as the 12th century BCE. The city of Carthage was founded in the 9th century BCE by Phoenicians who come from what is modern-day Lebanon. And eventually, Carthage became a real powerhouse. After a series of wars with the Greek city-states of Sicily in the 5th century BCE, Carthage rose to such power that it was eventually the dominant civilization in the whole Western Mediterranean, and at one point posed a real threat to the continued growth and expansion of the Roman Empire. Famously, during the Second Punic War, which occurred in the 3rd century before the Common Era, a Carthaginian leader named Hannibal famously rode elephants over the Alps and invaded Rome or the Roman-occupied Italian peninsula. And in a series of wars with Rome, nearly bankrupted the young Roman Republic. From the conclusion of the Second Punic War in 202, before the Common Era, Carthage functioned as a client state of the Roman Republic for another 50 years. Following the Battle of Carthage, which began in 149 BCE during the Third Punic War, Carthage was finally conquered by Rome in 146. Following this conquest, the Romans renamed Carthage Africa, incorporating it as a province in their growing empire. Among other things, the Romans brought Christianity, specifically Roman Catholicism, to what is modern Tunisia, and they were, as the barbarian invasions took place one after another after another, eventually replaced by the Germanic Vandals, who ruled over modern Tunisia, and then were conquered in turn or reconquered by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian I with troops led by the famous General Belisarius. In the second half of the 7th century, i.e. the 600s, Muslims gradually conquered all of what is now Tunisia. 
and in 670 of the Common Era, they constructed the Great Mosque of Kairouan. Kairouan is the oldest and most prestigious sanctuary in the Muslim world, with the oldest standing minaret in the world, and is considered a masterpiece of Islamic art and architecture. But Kairouan also became a great center of Islamic learning and ultimately of Jewish scholarship as well. And it had a special status as the first Islamic city in the Maghreb, which is to say Northwest Africa, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. So for roughly the next 800 years, in other words, after 800 years of Roman rule, Tunisia was ruled by various Muslim dynasties and was Arabic-speaking until the first Ottoman conquest of Tunis, which took place in 1534 under the command of Barbarossa. It wasn't actually until the final Ottoman reconquest of Tunisia from Spain in 1574 that the Ottomans permanently acquired the former Tunisia, and they retained it until the French conquest of 1881, so roughly 350 years under Ottoman rule. By the middle of the 19th century, Tunisian rulers had become aware of ongoing efforts in Constantinople or in Istanbul to modernize the Ottoman system of governance and to modernize society as a whole. And they attempted to effect modernizing reforms of their own. But to do so, they borrowed so much money internationally that their debt grew unmanageable. And this was the reason or pretext the French gave for establishing a protectorate in 1881. During World War II, Tunisia was occupied by Germany. And in any case, the French administration was the collaborationist French of Vichy, the Vichy regime. And Jews obviously did not fare well. After the war was over, France regained full rule until 1956, when Tunisia achieved independence and Habib Bourguiba became prime minister. A year later, Tunisia was declared a republic with Bourguiba as the first president. From independence in 56 until the 2011 revolution called the Arab Spring, the government and the main parties were effectively one. So it wasn't really a multi-party system or a multi-party democracy. So just to give some brief highlights about the history of Jews in Tunisia, I want to tell you that at the end of World War II, the Jewish population of Tunisia was approximately 110,000. Today, there's somewhere between 1 and 2,000 Jews, mostly living in Tunis, and some on the island community of Jerba. Among the many myths or founding stories of Jewish communities in Tunisia, one persistent myth is that the Jewish community of Jerba was settled by Kohanim, the Jewish priestly class, who resettled after the destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 before the Common Era. They supposedly carried away a vestige of the ruined temple, preserved it in the main synagogue of Jerba, and transformed that synagogue into a place of pilgrimage and veneration to the present day. Another origin story is based on biblical descriptions of the close relationship between the king of Tyre, named Hiram, and Solomon, the king of Israel. 
And according to this myth, Israelites were among the founders of the Phoenician city of Carthage in 814 before the Common Era, long before the destruction of the First Temple. In any case, scholars are in general agreement that by the time the Second Temple was destroyed, there was already an established Jewish community in what is today Tunisia, and its population was augmented greatly after the fall of the Second Temple, when many Jews were exiled and forcibly resettled by their Roman overlords in Tunis. They engaged in agriculture, trade, cattle raising, and other things that other residents of Tunisia did. Under the Vandals, government rule was relatively benign for Jews, but under the Byzantines, they were repressed as they were elsewhere in the Byzantine Empire, and things took a turn for the worse. Therefore, Jews in Tunisia were among the many Jews in the world who welcomed the Muslim conquerors in the 7th and 8th centuries as liberators because they were liberated from either Orthodox or Catholic overlords who were overtly hostile. For Tunisian Jewry, there were a lot of ups and downs in the coming century as one set of rulers got replaced by another, different Muslim dynasties, the Spanish, the Ottomans, and finally the French who came and took over in 1881. After the French conquest, young Tunisian Jews fairly quickly replaced French for the Judeo-Arabic that they had spoken for centuries, and more and more Jewish children began attending state schools throughout the country, which slowly led to the effective diffusion of French culture and lifestyle within the Jewish community. That's at least from the French point of view. From the Jewish point of view, it slowly led to assimilation. Between the end of World War II and the independence of Tunisia in 1956, there were heated debates in the Tunisian Jewish community about Zionism. Anti-Jewish attacks in several cities just following the Israeli War of Independence and conflict surrounding that war resulted in the first major wave of Jewish emigration from Tunisia. Uh, during this period, a mixed per picture emerged. On the one hand, President Habib Bourguiba was seen as having the most liberal policy toward Jews among any of the Arabic-speaking nation, even going so far as to apologize to Tunisia's chief rabbi after violent anti-Jewish rioting in 1967. However, various anti-Jewish decrees by the government, including the abolition of Tunisia's Jewish Community Council in 1958 and the destruction of synagogues, Jewish cemeteries, and Jewish neighborhoods, prompted more than 40,000 Jews to leave Tunisia between 1956 and 1967. By 1970, the vast majority of Tunisia's Jews had left the country. Those who emigrated primarily went either to Israel or to France. But in fairness, and to be even-handed, it should be noted that even today, with the possible exception of Morocco, of all the Arab countries in North Africa, Tunisia is the most friendly and the most welcoming of Jews, and that's why it still has an active Jewish community. Anyway, it's a beautiful country to visit, and it has a lot of Jewish history, some of which can still be seen, and I hope you get a chance to visit it for yourselves one day. Look forward to talking with you again soon. Signing off.